Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Professor Ari Y. Kelman, author of the new book, Shout to the Lord, Making Worship Music in Evangelical America, published in 2018 by New York University Press. Ari, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Ari. You've you've written a, a fantastic study exploring how songwriters, worship leaders, and music industry professionals across a, a wide spectrum of American evangelicalism contribute to make music that becomes prayer. Well, we're really interested to hear more about your work, but first, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project? Sure. I think most germane uh, to the current conversation is I was raised um, uh, in synagogue. I'm, I'm Jewish. My father is a rabbi. Um, although growing up, he wasn't the head of a congregation, but we spent a lot of time in synagogue. Um, and so I have a lot of firsthand experience with worship um, in the Jewish context, none, none beyond that, at least not until fairly recently in my life. Um, but it was always kind of a mystery to me about how it worked or how it didn't work. Um, so on the one hand, I have I have that, and I've led a fair amount of uh, worship in Jewish contexts over the course of my life. Um, never found myself particularly good at it because I always felt like I was not doing the thing that was supposed to happen when people were supposed to be engaging in this thing that we call prayer. So on the one hand, I have all of those experiences, um, and so and my constant like frustration or running into my own limitations as what we would call a worship leader, um, right, only led me to ask more questions about what what makes that thing possible. Um, running parallel to that is a deep and abiding love of popular music from when I was a kid. Like I have very um, you know uh, vivid memories before we would go to synagogue on Saturday morning of being alone in my room or my room with my sister um, playing the five Beatles records that my parents owned, um, you know, on this like gunmetal gray old, uh, uh, record player. Um, and that just 
uh, kept on going, kept on going. So on the one hand, and I know kind of how I felt at shows or how I, how I experience listening to popular music. Um, and I know how it felt being involved in a singing community uh, in synagogue. And uh, I always felt like there was a kind of disjuncture there in my life anyway, in my experience. And that led me, then I was doing research on this other book. Um, and that led me to ask questions. Well, who's really thinking quite intentionally about bringing the kind of power of popular music and the uh, intention of prayer together? Uh, who's asking good questions about how to make those things interact? Um, and that led me to church. That's great. In, in this book, you're, you're really focusing in on the contemporary worship music experience. And, and, and you've talked a little bit about your, your interest in, in popular music growing up, um, which is a, a group that hasn't often been the subject of much scholarly study. How, how are you defining this group that you're studying and, and why do you think they're worthy of uh, scholarly attention? Um, I think they're worthy of scholarly attention because they, well, I think they're worthy of scholarly attention because they exist um, at this intersection of the power of secular popular culture to move people and a desire to work really deeply within a religious tradition and to hold uh, core tenets of that tradition. And so they, there's a kind of traditionalism uh, as their, as part of their practice. And there's a sort of understanding that um, there's something else happening in the world. There's things one can access in the world to actually, that seem to some people antithetical to the more traditional elements. Um, and certainly at times, um, as I explore in the book, like have friction with the traditional elements, but nevertheless, the power of those things seems to hold some kind of promise if they can be kind of corralled or, or channeled in the right ways. And so for me, that's a, as somebody who studies religion, um, that's an incredibly interesting interface uh, and, uh, and one that's quite generative, ultimately, because it forces to ask really big questions about the boundaries between sacred and secular, the boundaries between individual experience and collective, uh, you know, belief or, or practice. You know, these are the kinds of questions that go way back to the beginnings of the study of religion in the first place, and perhaps even back to the beginnings of practice, the practices of religion um, historically. Um, how do I define these folks? Um, I made a strategic choice early on when I was uh, kind of starting to do some, some pilot research on the book that I was really interested in the producers of the music. Um, again, as a lifetime lifelong fan of popular music, I'm always kind of amazed at how it is that a song comes to exist. And as a frustrated, you know, musician of sorts myself, <laughs> I wouldn't say frustrated musician. I, I was never very good at it. Um, so I don't know that I was good enough to be frustrated, but as somebody who's um, interested in the processes by which music is made and by the, by the ways in which songs are made, I got really interested in how it was in the production side of it, as opposed to say a more phenomenological study of the experience of worship music for worshipers um, or even the kind of uh, history of worship music um, as it evolved over time. I was more interested in in the cultural production of a thing called worship music. So for me, if you were somebody who was involved in that enterprise, you kind of qualified for the study, as it were. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a really great way to approach it. Um, so tell us a little bit, but just about the the actual 
uh, method that you you employ to to conduct your research. In in the book, you mention um, field work and interviews, and of course, you're also dealing with some some printed materials and websites. Um, what what was uh, what was your uh, source material for this study that you did? Sure. Um, I have to say that um, as somebody who is now in charge of training a lot of graduate students, my approach to this was not systematic from the very beginning. It was it started with a lengthy kind of exploratory undertaking, um, which uh, started just by going to church. I'd never been to an evangelical church before I started, before I decided that I wanted to dip my toe into into this. Um, so I went to church. I went to a bunch of different kinds of church because I didn't. I had never experienced the range of of worship styles um, before. I did that mostly in California, where I was living in the Bay Area, which isn't so easy to do. Um, it's not like you know being in the South, the American South. Um, so I poked around until I found some things that were interesting. I started hearing some of the same songs, and then I would go and I would look up the songs when I got home, um, see who wrote them. That took me to um, the uh, CCLI, the uh, Christian Copyright Licensing website, which kind of opened up another door, which led me to Worship Leader, um, the magazine, which opened up another set of doors. Um, I went to a few conferences because I figured that would be a good place to kind of um, explore the, a, a breadth of things, uh, including uh, the first Worship Leader conference, which was really great for me. Um, and it was really a place where I found all the most of the people that connected me with most of the people who ended up being in the book because or connected me to people who connected me to those people because it was for people who either worked with or were themselves worship leaders and it was full of great sessions where people were asking really interesting questions that I found incredibly interesting as a as a researcher not necessarily as a practitioner um, and those really opened it up and then you know it became clear that I needed to understand more theology. So I read more theology. It became clear that I needed to understand more of the specific conversation about worship. So I read widely on that. Um, but it was, it was a much more, I would say organic, uh, uh process than, um, uh, than, uh, than I think many, um, sort of research projects take. Right. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, in in a sense, it's it's more a, akin to the way most people would come across the the kind of phenomenon of of worship music, um, you know, themselves. So it, it feels very natural, even if it felt like it was very, um, uh, at, you know, after the fact, um, you know, ad hoc as it was. Um, well, you know, let's let's really dive in here. In, in the first chapter, you you set about defining worship music, uh, and you use three e words. Uh, expressive, experiential, and educational uh, qualities that worship music has. Um, how do these three e-words um, help you kind of define this um, this artifact of of worship music that you're then going to explore the the way that it's made in the subsequent chapters? Yeah. So I I mean these came to me. I learned the trick about being alliterative with these kinds of schema some point along the way. Um, but these, these three terms in particular, and so it's a handy way to remember things, but these three terms in particular came out of the data. Once I had done, you know, all the interviews and I'd completed most of my field work, I still stayed in touch with my respondents, but I had mostly, um, things on the research side were beginning to wind down on the data collection side and things on the analysis side were starting to ramp up. And, 
I needed conceptually, I needed a way to understand um, worship music without offering up a kind of um, a definition that I knew would be artificially uh, limiting to the phenomenon. And so I didn't want to offer up a definition, but it made sense to me that that I had to put some kind of structure around this thing, this phenomenon called worship music, especially in the way that I was looking at it or listening to it. And so the, the three E's came pretty easily. Like it has to be expressive. It is an expressive form. This is not a, like a, it's not a form that lives well on the page in which, you know, it's sort of, it's, it, it's, it's not kind of, you know, quiet and contemplative. Um, it's an expressive form and it's written. One of the things that really captured me about the worship music in particular, as opposed to say pop music is that it, these are songs that are written for other people to sing. Right. Right. You know, I spent a lot of time with Joni Mitchell as a kind of like a uh, paradigm of the American singer songwriter ethos. And I, I spent a lot of time with her conceptually. I've never met her in person. <laughs> right. Um, but she spends a lot of, she occupies a lot of space in my head, right? Um, and Joni Mitchell can sing Joni Mitchell songs. Anybody can cover a Joni Mitchell song, but you're always covering a Joni Mitchell song. Um, but if I'm singing a worship song, right? If I write a worship song that I think my church is going to sing, I'm writing a song that's going to that's supposed to stand in or is going to stand in for another person's expression of devotion, right? That's the that's the purpose of it. Like that's a sort of cultural function, and so it has to be expressive. Right? It has to allow other people to express something. Um, uh, so much in religious studies is about, so that's the expressive one. The experience one, so much in religious studies is, has been written about religious experience um, and what it is. And I, I sort of dabble with that. But again, the, the, the expressive dimension of song doesn't quite capture the full-on, the full-born experience of the song, whether it's the breathing, whether it's the, your own breathing, your own ability to hear um, a congregation of people around you um, being among other worshipers, being in a place where other people are singing, there is an experiential quality to that that is different than just the expressive quality. And so I wanted to highlight that as well. And I wanted to acknowledge that the production of religious experience through the music um, is this kind of deeply social undertaking um, and requires a lot of craft uh, to it. So that's the experience part. And the education part of it, I now, um, when I started the project, I was housed in an American Studies Department at UC Davis. In the middle of the project, I moved to Stanford University, where I am now, and I am housed in an education, in a school of education. And so I really started thinking more as I was writing about worship songs as educational. That is, they, they teach people not just about God, um, but they teach people how to pray as well. And that's no small part of it. And when I started again, digging into the interviews that I had done with the songwriters and the worship leaders, there's a lot of talk about their anxieties or their kind of concerns that they would be misleading people either with their words or their actions. And that, that fear or those fears help them understand their place in, uh, help them kind of uh, make changes to the way that they either led things on stage or wrote their songs such that they were, they were trying to head off the possibility that they were not uh, educating people in the right way. But the educational dimension 
right? Either it's either because you're trying to transmit um, uh, theological concepts that are um, in line with those expressed in the Bible, or because you're trying to encourage people to express those ideas in ways that are in line with the kind of um, conventions of uh, white American evangelicalism, um, those are educational. You're teaching people to do a certain thing and to think in certain ways. And, and so I appreciated the vocabulary that the, that I have picked up in my years in the graduate school of education um, as a way of thinking about how music in this context works. You know, I think that the, these kind of three categories that emerged out of your research have such a great, if nothing else, just pedagogical value in, in, in kind of categorizing some of the, the different conversations that happen around worship music and it's um, even different schools of thought and the way that they'll approach um, whether worship is an expressive activity, whether it's an experiential activity, whether it's a f- educational or, or oftentimes you'll hear formative activity. And so I think there's these, these, um, these three terms that emerge out of your, your research are, are really helpful just in kind of giving some pegs around the, the conversations that are happening right now. So we've we've talked about from your research what a worship song is, um, the the worship music that's being made, and and really there's three primary actors which occupy your next three chapters. Um, it, so the first main actor in uh, in making worship music is the songwriter, and in this chapter you 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 talk about a larger cultural shift in the role of songwriters in music, which I thought was really interesting. You talk about folk discourse. What do you mean by that term, and and how does that relate to this this growing? I, I guess you could call it a genre around origin myths uh, of songs. Yeah, I mean the folk discourse is you know, um, there's this archetype of a uh, you know the the folk singer who sings songs and then she says, oh, here's what here's how I wrote this song and here's the story behind the song and the accessibility there." the proximity to the audience, the engagement, the informality um, that informed the culture of American folk music in the, you know, fifties and sixties, the lack of profession, the lack of quote unquote professionalism um, that was, you know, popular in, 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 uh, in the, the kind of mainstream songwriters and singers of, of the day. Um, that, fed into then in the late 60s and early 70s, like the emergence of the singer, the American singer-songwriter as the, the similar person, but with greater, <clears throat> perhaps greater attention to craft and, and a greater emphasis, I think, um, not on necessarily the meaning of the songs, but the fact that one was writing a song in which one was saying something. There was a message in that song, right? Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, I mentioned before, Paul Simon, people like that, where they have to have something, they have something to say. Um, and that, um, development in the late '60s and early '70s as a as a as a cultural phenomenon, I think, deeply influenced the emergence of worship music uh, at the time um, and certainly beyond. Where having something to say, right? I have I have something I want to express through this song that is personal to me, um, and then having a platform in which to share it with others, let alone to have others sing it which I think is where worship music departs from the kind of straight singer-songwriter uh, narrative. But that sense of accessibility, of proximity with the audience, where there's a shared a shared culture going on um, that really 
um, flourished in the form of the American singer songwriter uh, was deeply influential in the ways in which uh, worship evolved from, uh, you know, from Calvary Chapel um, and then into the vineyard. And how, how personal one could be was a, was one of the uh, points of departure for the vineyard to leave Calvary um, back in the day was how, how intimate is your, is your, can your songwriting be um, without violating a kind of understanding about uh, the, the expressiveness of this, this undertaking. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off you you point out this how this singer songwriter movement is really a departure from a, a previous era where where songwriting was was not often tied to performance uh that you know there were a lot of artists who were just singing other people's songs um kind of prior to this real this folk singer songwriter emergence and and almost, and you, you've kind of touched on this in, in just your, in your answer just now. The the worship leader almost occupies those two worlds simultaneously. There's that expressive singer songwriter dimension, but it's also in tension with, as you mentioned, this artisanal craft that uh, they're now writing songs for others, for congregations. You know, maybe like a, a previous era. So they're they're combining both of these, and and that tension between this muse like process, this inspirational process, and this craft of making something for another is almost like an old, an older generation professional songwriter. Uh, how, how, are, how are songwriters that you interviewed um, and, and some of your reading, how are they thinking of this tension between those two, uh, those two different kind of polarities of, of expressivity? Yeah, I mean, in a certain way, um, instead of those two poles kind of pulling them apart um the the people i spoke with over the course of the of research for the book kind of dug deeper on both of them um that is uh their desire to write songs that were you know uh connected to their either their personal experience or the experience of other people and that that um that figure of the storytelling singer songwriter in worship music is is prevalent. Um, it remains prevalent, um, and at the same time, they understood because of their role in the church that they could not just write songs that were based on their experiences alone. And and often when they said, um, you know, oh, I wrote this song because it came out of this particular moment in my life, and I couldn't believe, I couldn't imagine that anybody else would want to sing it, <laughs> and then they would be surprised that it caught on in their in their local church. Um, and then sometimes beyond. Um, 
And so they're always kind of surprised, but they spend a lot of time, I think, the, the people I talk to in the book anyway, um, thinking about the craft of songwriting and how it is that one takes a feeling or a Bible verse or a period in one's life and turns that into something that's about three and a half minutes long that utilizes the building blocks of popular music versus choruses, bridges, pre-choruses, chord changes, key changes, and so on um, to allow other people to enter into that expressive culture. Um, and the, the, um, that they can do both um, uh, speaks to their attention to, to craft, you know, and uh, you asked me at the top, like, well, why else, you know, why write about this stuff? Um, I think also because I, I was at a conference years and years ago and giving a, a talk on this, on my work. And, and somebody said, oh, well, all this talk on all this stuff about craft is just, you know, it just makes me think that they're kind of automatons. Now the comment or something like that. And the comment clearly belied a sort of prejudice against um, uh, the, the music, which I heard over and over again, like, oh, why would you, why would you write about this music? It's terrible, right? It's just derivative of popular music. And I actually think that the craft part of it uh, is, 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 was fascinating, you know, and any songwriter will tell you, any musician will tell you like, yeah, you, you need the craft <laughs> um, as much as you need the inspiration and sometimes more. And so for me, the fact that it was so kind of um, tossed aside, I have a knack for picking things that most people to write about that most people think are really boring. Um, so, uh, uh, the fact that people were so willing to disparage the music suggested also to me that it was striking a chord, not just in, even among white evangelicals, but among, um, fans of American popular music. And so there also, I, I thought it, it, it needed some additional attention to understand, well, what is happening here that does bring this music to, to exist and then how it is that it works in this context. Well, um, I'm going to keep with this this theme of tensions as we move on to to your next chapter. So we've talked about the um, the first group of people involved in making worship music are the songwriters, but then then we have to move and talk about the the worship leader, who's both a musical performer and a participant. Uh, you, you describe how uh, you know as the contemporary worship music continued to grow, uh, so did certain expectations worship leaders, these performers of worship music begin to, well, one, they're facing growing expectations for musical excellence and also for transparency, uh, transparency that manifests in, in two different kinds of ways of authenticity and sincerity on the one hand, and then quite literally transparency as in a kind of disappearing on the other hand. How do worship leaders or these performers navigate that tension uh, between excellence and transparency and and, and how is that um, showing up in, in your research on worship music? I mean, the people I talked to um, were pretty upfront that it requires a lot of effort. And I'm not, and uh, for me, that was part of this bigger constellation of concerns that led me to the, one of the insights of the book, which is that the production of sacred experiences, the production of religious experience in the context of worship, and sometimes outside of that, requires this incredible apparatus of cultural production. And so for them to say, uh, like one of the things I heard over and over again was, you know, oh, I, we, we rehearse a lot so that when we get on stage, 
we don't have to think about the chord changes. We can engage in the worship ourselves. And it's critical that we are there as worshipers, not as cold performers. And there's a kind of back and forth in the literature about whether or not it's performance. And I think it's performance, but I use, I think I have a, 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 a broader definition of performance than do other people. Um, but uh, uh, the, the effort required to do that, if anybody's ever performed music, no, it's a lot of work to, <laughs> to do that. Um, and it's, and it is in the service, not just of a good performance in the way that like, you know, uh, uh, a performer of popular music wants to give a good performer to, performance to their audience. It's not a matter of choreography. Exactly. It's a different kind of cultural production um, that nevertheless is born out of the human concerns for what it is to create a worshipful space and a worshipful uh, experience um, uh, and the opportunity to express themselves through worship for a congregation. And so I think that that sort of pivot point between the, the human and the transcendent, sort of between the, the very, you know, secular, uh, secular is not the right word, but the very kind of um, workaday rehearsals that I had a chance to watch of, of worship teams where they talked about, you know, oh, come in on this bar and, you know, then we're going to modulate here and here's how you do that. And who's got the cable and don't use that pedal. Like these very things that I would, that I have heard in rehearsal settings for rock bands, you know, um, so that when they get on, when they get into the worship center or they get in front of the congregation, they're not thinking about those things. They're thinking about, uh, what they're there to do on that morning. And so that those relationships for me were really like part of what made the subject so interesting. Um, and what I hope I was able to kind of excavate in the course of writing the book. I, I want to move now to your, your last chapter, which, which handles what may seem like an unexpected topic in a, in a study of, of religion. And that's a uh, kind of industry professionals. You, you talk about this distinct, change um in the kind of christian recording music uh, christian music recording industry from uh ccm or, or contemporary christian music towards a a, a a distinct worship music industry and you, you note a few influences along the way uh, delirious i think and michael w smith and the passion conferences um, who were some of these players and and what was the role that they played in in really influencing this this new shift and and a real really the emergence of a new industry. Yeah. So delirious and passion movement and uh, Michael W. Smith. Um, I mean, they all played different roles in the shift of the movement in the 1990s. Um, as did Paul Balash, whose picture is on the cover of the book, and um, Darlene Sheck, whose who, whose title I borrowed for. Whose, she wrote a song called shout to the Lord. And I borrowed that title for the title of the book also. So it's kind of those five players played, play the, the main, they're like the main players in the, in that chapter um, in charting that change. And they, you know um, what I learned from the conversations uh, that I had with people in the industry was that kind of in the seventies and through the late eighties and into the early nineties, worship music was great for Sunday mornings, but it wasn't going to sell a lot of records. And it wasn't CCM, which was where the industry was at. And it was fine. Um, and it kind of got the job done, but it didn't, it wasn't something that one wanted to listen to 
particularly in the car while you were driving around uh, your neighborhood or running errands or taking the kids to school. It wasn't something that kids were really interested in either. Um, and then um, delirious. I mean, they all, these things didn't happen. There's no like one moment where it all changed, but delirious started performing in England. Um, and, um, and uh, Michael W. Smith records an album called worship and Michael W. Smith is a long, I mean, he's a, a towering figure in, in uh, Christian music. Um, and so for him to say, for him to use his kind of cultural capital to record a, an album of worship music signaled that there might be some possibilities in worship music that transcended the kind of like, well, good enough for Sunday mornings, but I don't know about the rest of the week sort of attitude or that people would want to buy records of worship music, right? It was the kind of stuff you gave away after church so that people would learn the song, but not, you know, no one's going to make any money off this stuff. Um, and so Michael W. Smith's attention gave it culture capital. Delirious really gave it um, a new sound. They were, they sounded like, I mean, again, back to kind of the pop music, they sounded like British pop music in the early nineties, which is an incredibly fertile period in, in American popular music. Um, but they were doing it as a worship band and they were always uh, very, um, outspoken about that, right? They were not interested in just being Christian musicians. They were a worship band. They came out of meeting worship um, uh, in England. That was their, that was like where they grew up. Like if you imagine the Beatles playing at the Cavern in Liverpool or in uh, in Germany, sorry, uh, well, whatever, uh, playing at the Cavern in, in Liverpool, that was where they grew up. Um, and they were they're sort of always connected with that mythos. And, and Delirious was the same. That is, they were a worship band. That's how they identified. Um, and then um, Passion came along a little bit later um, and uh, was a college student-focused movement. And it started fairly small, but grew really, really quickly, largely on the circulation of recordings of their music and of the musicians who were associated with that movement very early on, almost all of whom became incredibly influential um, <clears throat> in, uh, in the world of worship music. Um, and you know, you, you make music that college students like, and they're going to start, this is in the late nineties. So they're going to buy the CDs. They're going to trade the CDs. I can't remember when Napster came in, must've been right around that same time. They're going to trade the MP3 files. Um, and they're going to spread the sound and they're going to spread the word. And then the, the college students started asking for those songs. The college students who would go to these, it started as a, an annual conference. Um, and, uh, they would experience the worship there. They would learn new songs. They would get the CDs. They would take the CDs home to their campuses um, and sometimes to their, their home churches. And they would say, Hey, you got, we got to sing this song. It's great. And then the songs I think are really great. I mean, I think they're great. Um, so, uh, so that really began to kind of, um, you know, shift the ground of the worship music industry. All of a sudden the song started sounding different. They had a, a kind of more modern sound. Um, you know, it was called like modern worship music for a while. Um, and it began to be the kind, it began to sound closer to the kind of music that you might be listening to in CCM that doesn't make the jump into worship music. But now it's both worship music and people are asking for it on the radio. People are buying the records. The songwriters are actually... Um, CCLI emerges and, and you can actually make money off of these songs um, as they're sung in other churches. And so the industry really um, sort of expands in this, uh, 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 in this 
very unexpected way. That is, you know, <laughs> I kept thinking about uh, the stone that the builders refuse, right? Um, uh, line from Psalms, I think it is, where here's this thing that was like kind of languishing in the Christian music industry for years. And then in the 90s and around 2000 and into the 2000s, it becomes the cornerstone of this new industry. You know, and it's completely neglected in the 70s and 80s in CCM Magazine. Like, nobody wants to do it. Like, it's really not part of the Christian music conversation. It's really this sort of um, kind of very small independent sector, uh, but not part of the, the industry proper. And then that shift happens in the mid to late 90s and really sort of catches on in the, in the 2000s. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. So you've you've talked about these three groups that are really involved in in making worship music uh, in, in evangelical America. You've talked about the the songwriters and the worship leaders and and the industry, the larger industry that are all working together to, you know, as as you say so well in the introduction to to make music that can become prayer. Um, you know, in your conclusion, uh, I'm going to quote you here. You say songs occupy an outsized place and how people understand congregational worship. Music does not define worship, but it does influence what people think worship is and how they think they ought to do it. So as we wrap up our discussion of your book, I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of maybe send us out with these two questions. Uh, what do you think is the study of songs, such as your research here? Um, what, what role does that study uh, play in the, the broader study of religion? And then, and then maybe who do you think might benefit from the work that you've done in your book? Mm, those are really good questions. I mean, <laughs> I think songs are fascinating for a variety of reasons, but largely because they're, they're cultural forms for conveying knowledge. That's how I think about it. That's how I came to think about them toward the end of the book. And, um, and, and that can be knowledge about God. It can be knowledge about prayer. It can be knowledge about church. It can be knowledge about love, right? If we're looking just at sort of popular music in America, for example. And the song, however long it is, three and a half minutes, seven minutes, um, it is a cultural form that contains that knowledge and transmits it in this incredibly powerful way. Um, so you layer that on top of the fact that pretty much any instance of anything that we might call worship around the world historically, there's like some musical dimension, whether it's only drums or whether it's chanting um, those two things seem to run like there it's at the risk of universalizing it's a universal <laughs> right so, so I think that something that runs that deep whether it's comes from uh, outside that is to say it's an expectation about how people ought to engage in that practice or whether it's a desire for people to express themselves in that way whether it's sort of top down or bottom up it exists in so many places in and around the world that it seems to me uh, worthy of uh, much more attention than I could possibly give it, um, you know. Um, and then layer on top of that, the incredible kind of outsized cultural power that popular music has had in the 20th century. We think about people like Elvis Presley or the Rolling Stones or the role of rock and roll in, you know, even in the Cold War um, and or jazz in the Cold War as well the kind of cultural power of the, of the form of music um, as conveyed through songs, uh, I think is like this, uh, it's just this like uh, treasure trove of insights into 
uh, how it is that we how it is that we live and how we understand ourselves and one another, um, you know, as human beings. Um, who can benefit from this? Um, I hope that I, when I was writing, I was writing with two um, really two audiences in mind. One were my colleagues uh, in the academy, so people who think about religion, people who think about religious practice, people who think about religious uh, forms of religious life or forms of religious knowledge, religious education. So those kind of one cluster of people, people who write about popular music. Um, and the other cluster of people were people who are in the industry. Like I hope that after doing all the interviews and doing all the field work and really thinking deeply that I had something um, valuable or insightful to tell them about the work that they do. Not that I have more expertise than them. I'm uh, keenly aware of the fact that I, I do not, that I was writing in conversation with them, um, but that I hope that I was able to highlight some things about the practices of making music and the humanity of that undertaking um, that doesn't you know, diminish its, its spiritual or theological dimensions, but that actually helps us understand better how it is that people uh, engage with, articulate, um, and develop practices around encounters with something transcendent. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, I would just say, I, I think this would make a great textbook um, for a, kind of an introductory worship class. I mean, you, you talk a little bit in the book about this kind of emerging as this movement developed, there was more and more, um, there were more and more schools uh, and, and d- even degree programs that um, are trying to train uh, men and women to, to do this, uh, to, to be songwriters and, and worship leaders and, and maybe even industry professionals. And I think you've, you've just provided such a, a wonderful uh, introduction to just kind of the conversations that are happening are around this, this cultural production, this, this religious expression. And I think that, I think you, you've given us a, a really great resource in, in this book. You, you've been so generous with your time with us today. Before we say goodbye, uh, you know, I'm curious, would you uh, share a little bit about what you're working on next? Sure. I just want to say that uh, um, it's super, your conclusion was super ironic because I started off the thing by saying, yeah, I did not. I tried to lead worship for a long time, but I did not understand how it worked, and I was not very good at it. So it would be ironic to have this as a textbook in a class with people trying to learn how to do it better. Um, uh, so I, I appreciate that. I, I take that uh, as a very serious compliment. So thank you. Um, ironic though it may be. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm working on a couple projects. I think the one germane to this conversation is a project that I'm starting now that I'm a little bit daunted by, but incredibly eager to uh, dig down into when I have um, after the end of the school year this year. Um, and it's a, <clears throat> it's a history of religious education in America, largely focusing on the post-war, post-World War II period. So looking at the period of time from the Cold War to the culture wars, basically, um, which was in studies of, of uh, religion, sorry, this is like the heyday of secularism, the secularism thesis. Um, you have in the middle of that Brown versus Board of Education, which made segregated schools illegal. It's very, it's another United States focused project. Uh, Sputnik goes up, that's in 1954. Sputnik goes up in 1957 and the American educational system starts paying increased attention to science. Um, and and um, and then there's a series of court cases in the United States, which sort of deepens the separation between church and state. And I am interested in how it is that people who are committed to religious education, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews primarily, but in following 1965, that gets more diverse. How it is that folks who are committed to religious education understand their enterprise in a country and in a context in which public education 
is more and more is sort of increasingly uh, dominated by secular and scientific concerns. Um, what they were, what they understood they were doing when they were trying to kind of keep the faith, as it were. So it's a different, it's a different kind of project. Not interviews, not social science, um, more historical, um, but it covers some of the same years, at least the early years there. Um, but asking, you know, similar questions about this, the sort of relationship between the sacred and the secular. Um, how it is that forms of religious knowledge take shape. That was looking at songs. This is looking at, at schools um, and educators. Um, but, uh, but I'm kind of excited about it. Again, it's, I have this knack of picking things that people think are really, really boring. Um, and hopefully, ho- hopefully a part of my job is to say, like, you know, we, it, it's so obvious, um, but it deserves a second look. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project. Um, maybe we could have you back on the show and talk about it once it's uh, come to fruition. It can be like 10 years. We'll be good. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, well, well, thank you so much, Ari, for joining us. Um, once again, the book is Shout to the Lord, Making Worship Music in Evangelical America by Ari Y. Kelman, published in 2018 by New York University Press. Thanks for joining us, Ari. Thanks, Ryan. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And and thank you for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Be sure to like or subscribe in your favorite podcast app and visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com to find out more information, including links to purchase any of the great new books featured on the show. Until next time, I hope you have a great day. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.